0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn.
1: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news.
0: Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, for the longest time, when we talk foreign currencies, I've always asked our learned guests, Give me a bear case for the U.S. dollar, because for the longest time, uh, there was no bear case for the U.S. dollar, it seemed like. But again, all it takes is a global pandemic and a Fed coming to the rescue. And there you go. Kit Jukes, Global FX Strategist, Chief Global FX Strategist for Societe Generale, and one of our go-to folks on all things currency, joins us. Uh, Kit, thanks so much for joining us here. Give us a sense here of... What you think has been driving this dollar again down almost 9% from its March 20 high. Give us your sense of what's happened to the dollar, how the market's treating the dollar, and kind of how you think it proceeds from here.
2: I think the first thing that happened is if you looked back at that, that, that sort of week in March, when the Fed saved the market, fixed the repo market, fixed the international swap market, came up with the Main Street program. I mean, that, that was a spectacular week for the Fed, even by the history of central banks in the last decade and a bit. Um, and, and you could you could write all of that down and say, what, what makes the dollar go shooting up in times of crisis? It's that all the world needs dollars, because that's if you know, if you borrow money, you you have debts. You, you you need to get hold of dollars to make the system work, and and that's what caused that um, spike higher in March. And the Fed effectively said, we are going to make sure that the rest of the world can have as many dollars as they need at a fair price. You know, we're standing by. And and if you just took that at face value, you'd say, right, I have a bearish case for the dollar. What I don't have today, and very much the sense then, is a bullish case for anything else because. Um, you know, at that point, it very much the sense was: this is going to be a terrible pandemic for emerging market economies. It'll be worse in Europe than in the United States, and so on and so forth. Um, I, I think so. So that that piece was was easy. And in a sense, that's why gold gold did well straight away, and the currencies that had been the most beaten up in the first half of march bounced back some of their lost ground i think that's evolved now in in two ways in in recent weeks one has been that the european recovery fund announcement has given i think it's given the market permission to sell the dollar because the second biggest currency in the world the euro now has actually at least an agreement for proactive fiscal policy which is a big step forwards on the part of europe's politicians uh, and that helps. Um, and then I think there's also this sense, you know, slightly more negatively for the U.S. that the Fed is, isn't necessarily done because the U.S. economy is fighting, um, fighting the pandemic, you know, perhaps less successfully at, at, at the moment than some of the other economies. Now, the, the announcement about the um, Unemployment insurance transition will will help the U.S. in that regard. But this, there's this sense that maybe the U.S. isn't going to come out of this best economically, and the growth differentials are going to be tighter as well as the interest rate differentials. Um, but, but I think the European thing just gave permission to the market to say, yep, if I'm allowed to buy other currencies, now I can sell the dollar, because that was straightforward. Yeah.
1: So, Kit, where in the world are we going to see serious long-term problems because of a weaker dollar and because of obviously the coronavirus impact? Are there currencies that are going to be in real trouble?
2: Um, not, not. Well, it's okay. So there, there, there are a couple of reasons. One is, you know, historically, a weaker dollar is usually a symptom that the world's in good shape because money's flowing out of the United States looking for opportunities. So, usually, I, I put a, a weaker dollar down as being a good thing because the things that make it a good thing. Uh, are, are encouraging now. Economically, I'm still worried about emerging markets at the moment because economically, they're not in a good shape. The kind of the the ability to do the kind of things the Fed did. But you know, if you can help your economy with quantitative easing, if you can help your economy with with your central bank buying debt straight off the government or out of the market to keep interest rates super low, while you come up with with fiscal help for your economy, all all of that's good. If you're an emerging market economy, you don't have anything like that degree of leeway uh, in terms of policy. So you're you're left with, with fewer defences uh, against a pandemic, and your main markets are developed markets. So, um, so, so so I worry that the dollar's weakening earlier than you know than, than necessarily um, helps for for some of those. And I think August could be a, a tricky month for some of those currencies. And then you've got the ones that have just moved very fast. You look at Um, You look at the euro in in trade-weighted terms, the euro is already significantly stronger than it was at the best level it reached at the beginning of 2018 when we we saw a big rally in 2017 when the ECB said it was planning to taper its bond purchases. They got growth over 2%. We got all terribly excited with ourselves. um, And that fizzled out spectacularly through 2018. Now, the euro can't keep on going up at this pace. Um, without uh, without having some economic impact the economy is not in good enough shape it's a much more open economy than the United States so I'm um, I- I'm desperately hoping I'm not wrong to be thinking you know I wish I could buy the euro here or cheaper in a few months time this is going too fast for me
1: 117.69 that rose pretty quickly very briefly we're out of time kid but a target for the British pound sterling
2: uh, the British pound sterling, I think, is going to run out because I think the euro is going to run out of momentum here. The pound is going to go on weakening against the euro. And if the euro tops out because it's gone up too fast, I think we'll be back at 125 in due course.
1: From 12878 right now. Kit Jukes, thank you. Always such a pleasure to speak with you. Kit Jukes is Chief Strategist at Societe Generale, but of course, uh, many decades following currencies and has a huge amount of insight into both developed markets and emerging market currencies. And of course, you mentioned the Fed, Paul, and you know, yeah. we're waiting on what we hear from the Fed this week, unlikely to be too much to celebrate, I imagine.
0: No, I think we're going to see uh, lower for longer. Uh, I think the Fed's comfortable here. And uh, and we're seeing that uh, in the dollar. We're seeing that in gold.
1: Our next guest wrote a recent column saying Republicans had four months to figure out their position on the next big pandemic relief bill. It sounds like today, finally, we're getting some proposals on that next big bill, although it's far from what most people would like. Let's check in now on our Bloomberg Opinion columnist, Jonathan Bernstein. Jonathan, we're just getting word that Senate Republicans propose cutting supplemental unemployment benefits to $200 a week for a transitional period which would last two months. Of course, we know that Democrats do not agree with this. What do you make of a transitional period? Will it work?
3: Well, they're also saying that they they want to eventually get to this 70% uh, level um that the white house has been pushing and that the states don't actually have the capacity to be able to administer so that's a problem in their own proposal and you know it's apparently an internal problem within republicans that some want to give nothing some want to give more and so they're sort of trying to find a way to negotiate you know again this is something that they've had four months to figure out they've had two months since the democrats passed their bill And they're only now, you know, essentially after the deadlines are uh, passing, uh, coming up with a proposal. But it's a proposal that the Democrats aren't going to have very much interest in at all. So, you know, we don't think that they're going to come up with a compromise by uh, by August 1st. Are they going to come up with a compromise within one week, two weeks, three weeks? We don't know.
0: Jonathan, is there any sense of why it took the Republicans so long to come up with – Ah, uh, this package again. Months after the Democrats came up with theirs, is this simply a political negotiating tactic by the Republicans? If
3: it is, it's a stupid one. Um, but what I think is that that you know it's a dif- dysfunctional party. There's uh, Lindsey Graham said over the weekend that forty percent of Republican senators are going to vote no, uh, no matter what the package is. They essentially think you know there are Republicans who believe that unemployment benefits. Are the thing that is causing the recession. Now, everybody here in the real world thinks that the coronavirus is the thing causing the recession. And, you know, mainstream economists think the best thing the government can do is to give relief and give stimulus. But there's a lot of Republicans who don't believe that. And they think that, you know, money going to people is a problem. And so, you know, and Republicans over the last few years have been just terrified of their most conservative members. Even if it's a minority within the party and a minority uh, in the larger population, they just don't want to get on the wrong side of the conservatives and that causes a lot of problems.
1: So Jonathan, what's the idea here? How will this work? People who were getting an extra 600 you know, maximum will now get 200 extra and what? Some of them will be forced back to work. Is that the idea?
3: That's the idea, but of course the jobs aren't there.
1: Yeah,
3: you know there there's, there aren't tons of people advertising jobs that can't find anybody. There's some anecdotal evidence that individual people here and there are saying, "Well, I'm not going to go back to work yet because of the $600 supplement." That probably is true that there are you know occasional people out there, but so somebody else will jump in and grab that job. So it's not you know a problem for the economy, a problem for jobs that. Um, you know, that, that these benefits are generous. And in fact, what it has been is it's been very successful. Um, you know, the, uh, the numbers on um, retail spending and things like that have been surprisingly good despite uh, the shutdown in April. So, you know, it's been a successful program, but Republicans just don't like it. Um, so John- and remember, this is only a piece of it. Uh, the Democrats are also pushing another $2 trillion of aid to state and local governments and a bunch of other things that are not in the Republican package.
0: That's kind of where I want to go, Jonathan. I mean, as a former trader, I look at the bid-ask spread and I see a bid of a billion dollars here from the Republicans and ask on the other side of $3, 3500000000000 from the Democrats. That's a big, big gap. Is any realistic expectation that they can bridge that gap this week?
3: I don't think so. Um, You know, Republicans are going to talk about, well, let's just do one thing to tie this over. But the Republican uh, partial idea was to, oh, let's give us all the Republican preferences. Um, You know, they want a liability shield for employers. That's something Democrats don't want. It might be something that can be compromised, but it certainly isn't going to go into an additional tie this over plan, nor is the Republican idea of unemployment insurance going to go into a, you know, a, a short term extension. So, no, I think that, um, you know, we're going to go to zero is what's going to happen. And, and then maybe they'll come up with something and it'll take a few weeks.
1: Yeah, it's pretty stunning. I mean, what if the data starts changing pretty quickly and consumer confidence starts tanking again, consumer spending starts tanking and, you know, the savings rate starts tanking? Will Republicans change their mind?
3: Uh, possibly. You know, the the crazy thing about this all is that there's an election coming up. Republicans are the incumbent party. They should be the ones who are desperate to goose the economy doing anything possible short term, you know, in advance of the election. And they, you know, there are just some Republicans who, as far as I can tell, honestly believe that the best thing that the government can do is cut off funding.
0: So it it appears that Speaker Pelosi and and Senator Schumer and some others are really leading a, a fairly unified effort on the part of the Democrats. Who's leading the Republican side? Is is it the president? Is it um, Mitch McConnell? Who's really leading the Republican response here?
3: That's an excellent question. Um, what it seems like is that the uh, Republican senators are sort of in control of what they can ask, what the, but that the White House or um secretary mnuchin i guess so not the white house is going to be the lead negotiator but uh, you know that's what that worked out last time in march it was very successful um but this time with a new white house chief of staff and with more republican senators who are holding back it's not clear how much authority mnuchin's going to have to do the negotiations you know that's if, if if there was a clear um, you know, negotiating plan with a clear unified Republican party, well, then maybe they could bridge that huge gap, but right now it doesn't really look like that's the case.
1: So, we have all of these people, 25 million unemployed people facing a back to school season with an extra $200 in their pockets. Is that is that going to work, Jonathan? Are we going to see, you know, panic and mayhem?
3: <laughs> um, you know, I <laughs> that's a good question. Um, And I don't think they're going to, you know, there's not going to be this $200 because they're not going to settle on anything, Mm. uh, at least short term. You know, possibly maybe what they can do is do a quick bill with, they're talking about a $1,200, another round of $1,200 direct checks. That might be something they could do short term as a compromise. It's possible that, you know, once Republicans come to the table and realize that they're nowhere close to a deal, maybe they'll agree to extend the $600 for longer, you know, it's it's just hard to see exactly yep. how that happens.
0: Hey, Jonathan, thanks for joining us. We'll be talking to you, I know, in the future here because this story is going to remain front and center. Jonathan Bernstein, Bloomberg Opinion, politics columnist, uh, joining us. You can hear and read all of you can read all of Jonathan's work as well as the others at bloomberg.com/opinion. Well, geopolitical issues continue to have significant impacts on these markets as we trade day-to-day. Jack Devine, founding partner and president of the Arkin Group, joins us. He's also former chief of the CIA's worldwide operations. We always appreciate getting his perspective on global geopolitics. Jack, there's so many areas to go here. I'd like to start with a topic that I thought at the time was hugely critical, but it feels like it's faded a little bit, and that's the Russian bounties. What's the latest there on what uh, many people felt like was a big, big issue for our military?
4: Right. Well, I do think it's faded. I mean, I, I, I think what uh, what we're looking at here is um, it shouldn't be surprising. In other words, the Russians are supporting the Taliban uh, and uh, that they would be uh, supporting the overall effort to undermine U.S. forces there is, is not a surprise. What was a surprise is a specific bounty. Uh, in the old days, we you know, talk about taking scouts, right? So I think as they got into it, I, I think listening to the commander in chief of, of forces out there that, you know, there was no doubt that the Russians are aggressive, not only in Afghanistan, but around the world, but that they could actually tag it to a specific, uh, you know, so much for, per head it seemed to be a little bit more tenuous. It's not that I don't think it happened. I think the question also was how far up the chain did it go? How high you know, did it take place? Was it a local thing or was it a, a, you know, approved by the Kremlin? So I think that sort of watered it down and I think it lost lost some steam.
1: How much resentment is being built up in the armed forces because there is going to be no retaliation on things like this, and just Russia and in, ge- in general the involvement, you know, in, in U.S. politics, w- whether it's solicited or very unsolicited.
4: Ronnie, I think this is a really good question and a difficult one for us to grapple with. I, I'm just stunned. I mean, I'm an old cold warrior, if you will and the aggressive behavior of uh, russia vis-a-vis the united states and how it uses cyber and its aggressive use of paramilitary forces whether it's in uh, ukraine libya today i mean it is amazingly aggressive and uh, i think it's uh, is a, is a surprise the fact that people collect intelligence by all means there's no country around the world that isn't using its collection capabilities Become wiser, that it becomes aggressive in the use of it, such as in elections or in going in and trying to co opt our, uh, our, our uh, science vis a vis the virus, disrupting elections and stirring up and destabilizing democracies in the West is really a very aggressive thing. Now, how do you respond? <laughs> that's, that's your question. I think we've, we've uh, moved to sanctions, right? But where does it stop? I mean, I actually was very surprised at the beginning when the Russians went in in the 2016. I thought, this doesn't make any sense. How how does this help? How does it really help them? That they would do it again in this election is, is, is surprising, but, but there was a notice put out yesterday saying they're going to, they and others are well, doing it. So Can I
1: just jump in, though? I mean, it's, it's not just how do you respond. It's that the armed forces who are serving under a commander-in-chief... In the President Donald Trump, know that there isn't going to be a response. Therefore, you know, how much resentment is being built up and what are the long-term effects of resentment in, you know, an army in what's purported to be a very open democracy?
4: Well, I think the question of re- response, uh, I said, in order for you to react with force, to use force, you have to have, at least by my standard, Concrete uh, uh, evidence that suggests that this is a Kremlin-directed thing. Otherwise, when you respond with force, you're gov- You're responding government to government. So, where I think there has been no pushback is in the entire. Well, it's the fight that I think is maybe warranted now, and that is the pushback in the cyber area, and it's, it's, uh, it's rather, rather shocking. Again, and I would add the aggressive, power, military So. Do our forces are our forces aggrieved by it? I mean, I think our forces uh, are still as dedicated and loyal and, and, and well polished as any army that ever existed. So, I'm not sure it's having an, an impact on our morale. I just think it's a, you know a, a really egregious mm. transgression of the rules of the game. And but what I think happened here is they there wasn't enough to use force to go to go back to go back on them. Yeah. Uh, often these responses need to be near real time, and it's really hard to get that type of evidence uh, quick enough. But what about the elections? I mean, that's what's crossing my mind. I mean, or these uh, uh, egregious attempt, of both the Chinese and the Russians to get the virus. I mean, how are we going to respond to that? Now, I think, you know, the Russians have a different game plan, which is they don't really have they don't really abide by the rules anymore and they are pressing the button and despite saying nice things in public they're extremely aggressive will we become aggressive in terms of their internal affairs I don't think we've gone down that path and I think if it continues we're going to be pushed into it and I think Putin is a much more high-risk aggressive leader than is generally recognized
0: Jack are you surprised at all or should we be surprised that? Our own intel, tech, technical intel, people haven't been able to better defend our networks. I'm thinking about the NSA and the CIA and maybe even the FBI. That you know, I'd rather depend upon them, I think, than some kids out in Silicon Valley.
4: Well, you know, we also have the Cyber Command and the Armed Forces as well. I mean, I honestly, I don't. I think where you get compromises are not are usually not technical compromises. It starts with a human being that that changes sides, so to speak, usually for commercial reasons and and disenchantment with the system because they didn't get promoted. So when you see a a breach in NSA, it's usually because there's a a human agent in the process, right? And the the famous case of Walker who gave up all of our military uh, communication system back in the 80s. I mean, that's how it keeps on. I don't think I don't think they're breaking into the CIA's communication system. I haven't seen anything that showed that the Russians had that capability, or the NSA is a, a, a leg up with the NSA. I still think we have a world-class capability that no one can match in this field. Having said that, mm-hmm. will we use it offensively? You know, and, and I don't, and I think that's that's a question that in a democracy, as Bonnie was saying you know, in a democracy. How do you work your way through this? How do you get consensus down on a hill and not read about it in the Washington Post the next
0: day?
1: It's a question for the next time we speak, which hopefully will be very soon. Jack, thank you. That is Jack Devine, president of Arkin Group, former chief of CIA Ops. The consulate wars continue between the U.S. and China. It is a situation that bears watching very closely. So we thought we'd speak with somebody who knows China inside out. Leland Miller is CEO of China Beige Book. And we often speak to Leland about China data, how transparent it is, how truthful it is. We'll get to the data in a moment. But Leland, welcome and thanks for joining. Uh, My pleasure. What do you make of this tit-for-tat on consulates? Is it a distraction? Is it a deterioration in relations between the U.S. and China that we really need to watch?
5: Yeah, you know, I think the best way to look at this is as the calm before the storm. And when people saw shutdowns of consulates and and all these other very aggressive rhetoric uh, being used lately, they think, wow, things are getting really nasty. But we really haven't seen anything yet. There's a reason that we shut down, uh, that we shut down uh, one consulate and, and not another. And that's the reason the Chinese shut down Chengdu instead of shutting down Shanghai. Mm. So this is really the two sides starting to, starting to get angry at each other, but not wanting to push the needle past a certain point. There, there's not a decision yet to truly escalate, but I think escalation is exactly where we're heading this fall and maybe as soon as next month, actually.
0: What would escalation look like, Leland, in your mind?
5: Well, again, you know, the thing that holds everything together is the trade deal, because, you know, you've got a lot of anger in in, in the United States, whether it's for COVID or trade and other things uh, related to China. You've got the election coming up and and China's going to be a major issue. But what's been holding everyone back thus far has been the fact that the president wants his purchases and as a result uh you know the, there's been less uh, aggressive stance from republicans in congress and the democrats haven't gotten going yet either because they don't know what to react to to the extent that the phase one trade deal fails i think that this is while a symbolic step will really be sort of uh, letting the gate open in terms of much more uh toxic environment between the two sides
1: leland what makes you so convinced that we are definitely headed for escalation and possibly even as soon as next month
5: well, I think the, the the timing wise, I I look at the like how long can the president stand behind the trade deal? You know, it was a very a set, of, a set of a very aggressive target to start with, uh, but then you had COVID, and now because of the the backlog and in, in and the, the problems with supply chains, and uh, you, you know you are you're guaranteed to have some huge huge misses when first half data come out uh, next month. So I think it's going to be very hard to stand behind the trade deal when. The Chinese haven't been hitting the targets that the President that President Trump expects them to. Uh, in addition, you have a, a – China is a very, very big issue in, in the November election. And while uh, Joe Biden hasn't been attacking uh, Trump yet on, on China, they're both going to be going at each other saying, you're weaker than I am, and as a result, policy is going to be drifting to a much more hawkish direction.
0: So, Leland, what do we know about the China economy right now? I, I know there is – obviously, they reopened before we did – Uh, just give us a kind of an update on kind of what you're hearing about the reopening and its impact on uh, their economy
5: yeah again the the most difficult word to use is recovery because of course you're seeing a recovery you saw a recovery from a a standstill economy earlier this year but what there has been has been sort of month-to-month improvement quarter to quarter improvement where I think people have really gotten this wrong is by looking at official data which is already claiming that year-on-year things have gotten better in our data nowhere is there any year-on-year expansion? Everything is still worse than last year. Now, that's not an indictment. I mean, you've got a, you've got some serious difficulties with, with uh, you know, the economy getting back on its feet after a very serious pandemic. But I think that the claims that there's a year-on-year improvement we're already back to some level of normalcy. That's totally flawed. And I think the more that people from abroad are looking at China's experience and thinking, hey, we can duplicate that, uh, they're, 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 they're really going to have the stool kicked out from under them.
1: What did you make of Bridgewater's Ray Dalio warning that the conflict between the U.S. and China could expand into a capital war? What would a capital war look like?
5: Right. Well, the the important part of that is could. So it is in the realm of the possible that we expand into yet another direction where, say, the United States cuts off capital flows uh, to China, (laughs) there's even talk about abrogating debt obligations owed to the chinese these are extraordinary acts of financial warfare i can tell you they are not being considered right now by the white house i wouldn't think a joe biden presidency would have them in store either uh they're not impossible because again we're, we're in a new environment where both sides are grasping for 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 tools that they've never thought they would use before uh but i think This is something to keep your eye on. You have to be aware of the risks, but we're nowhere near right now a situation where we're going to be doing a broad sort of capital war against China.
0: What do we know, Leland, if anything, about uh, Vice President uh, Joe Biden's view and potential policy towards China?
5: Well, we don't know much because the, the Biden presidency, uh, the Biden campaign—I'm sorry, Biden campaign—has been very, very quiet behind the scenes, uh, thinking it's advantageous for them to sort of let the, let the president continue to do what he's doing. And 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 you know, as as Biden keeps going up the polls, I think as we get closer to the debates, we're going to start seeing a much more hawkish type uh, China policy coming out of the campaign for the simple reason that Biden is vulnerable based on. What he's done in the past is his association with the last administration on being weak on China. And I think that's something the president will want to hit. So what, what, what Biden, the campaigner, is going to have to do is show the world that he's tough on China. He's even tougher than President Trump. And I think the two of them are going to be going into a boxing match where everyone, you know, each is going to be calling the other weak on China. Right. And that, of course, means China policy is going to be driven in only one direction. Right. Exactly. To the right.
0: Leland Miller, CEO, China Basebook Book International, our go-to expert on all things China. Lots of moving pieces, as there typically are. And as uh, Leland points out to us and makes sure that we focus on, is uh, election is coming up. And likely that's going to push the rhetoric, the China rhetoric, more to the forefront. Uh, and as Leland suggested, perhaps more to the right as each uh, candidate tries to uh, uh, you know, assess who is stronger on against China.